It's Monday, listeners. That means it's another Religious Studies Project podcast. Christopher Conter, your uh, faithful, regular host. I'm joined to my left by... David Robertson, your other faithful host? Or unfaithful host, I suppose, perhaps. <laughs> uh, and to my right, uh, joining us all the way from down under, but here in Edinburgh, is... Ray Redford, your Rian host, I assume? That, that could work. That yeah. Could work. Uh, what are you doing here, Ray? Why are you sitting in my living room? Uh, you invited me in. You <laughs> went, hey, come around, see the sights. And I decided to take a bit of a holiday while doing my PhD. And now I'm here, exploring the wonderful sights of Edinburgh. And you don't get to take a holiday if you're in Edinburgh and you're a member of the, R- the RSP team because we rope you into recording intros like is happening right now. That's fine, you know. I'm over here. I'll, I'll give it a go. Although I don't feel like I feel like I am under the dulcet tone bandwidth here. Oh no, it's Just... working quite well, Ray. Ah. And um, Ray hasn't even been taking a break from posting on RSP social media whilst he's been here. So if you do follow us on social media, it's likely Ray that you're hearing from. What is this week's interview, Chris? Um, this week's interview, it's the first interview from um, Maria Alexitikaya. He's been speaking with Jasmine Zine on preserving identity and empowering women on how do Canadian Muslim schools affect their students. Uh, I've listened to the interview. It's fun. Gets a little uh, controversial towards the end, so stick with it, listeners. Take it away, Maria. Uh, hello, my name is Maria Alexeyska. I'm here in Ottawa at the Summer Feminist Festival, and it's my pleasure to welcome one of its key speakers, Dr. Jasmine Zine, a full professor of sociology, religion and culture and Muslim studies at Wilfrid Laurie University. Her areas of research include Islamic feminism, Muslim education and Islamophobia. She has been involved in the national study on the impact of 9-11 and domestic security policies on Muslim youth in Canada. Also, as an education consultant, she has developed award-winning curriculum materials that address Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism. Today we are going to talk about Muslim schools in Canada and their impact on their students' identity development and integration in the society. To start this discussion, could you please first explain what Islamic schooling in Canada is? Uh, Yes, thank you for the question. Um, Looking at Islamic schooling in Canada, there's actually many forms that it takes. There are uh, a number and a growing number of full-time schools Islamic schools, um, which teach uh, the ministry curriculum in whatever province um, they exist, as well as uh, sort of Islamic studies. Um, and uh, that's usually taught in terms of Arabic and Quran, but also often tends to try and integrate Islamic knowledge into, you know, what would be considered secular subjects, like whether it is science or, you know, world issues or, or, or mathematics. And so that's one form that Islamic schools take is in that, in the full-time um, school. And those are, uh, at least in Ontario, they're not funded. Uh, only Catholic schools are, are funded in Ontario. Um, so they're, in that sense, private schools, but not private in the sense of being elite. They're community-based uh, schools. Um, the teachers there, some have uh, Ontario's uh, teacher certification and bachelors of education. Others don't because it's not a requirement for um, private schools in Ontario to have certified teachers. So many um, aren't trained in, in pedagogy uh, or in education specifically. They've obtained uh, post-secondary degrees, usually outside of Canada. 
And um, they, when they come to Canada, they uh, often elect to teach in an Islamic school as opposed to um, find other jobs for which they are often uh, uh, find themselves underemployed, even though they've got, you know, education and qualifications. But because it's very difficult, um, you know, to find jobs in Canada, even when you're qualified, if you're here as a foreign professional. So they end up uh, working within Islamic schools. So um, that's a bit about the formal uh, full-time Islamic schools. There's also weekend schools, what they call madrasas, that usually happen, uh, you know, on a Sunday or on a weekend. And that's where uh, children who are attending public school will go on the weekends, kind of like a Christian Sunday school for religious instruction. Uh, so they have that. Um, they also have the HIFS schools, which is where children go generally, you know, full-time to learn the memorization of the Quran. So that's another kind of Islamic school that exists. And then there's also informal sites of Islamic education through things like summer schools, summer camp, um, halakas, like uh, Islamic study circles um, that are held uh, in mosques and sometimes outside of them as well through community centers and so on. And so a lot of that informal education also happens um, in addition to the formal uh, types of Islamic education that have developed, um, you know, in Canada over the last couple of decades. And if we talk about full-time Muslim schools in Canada, in your opinion, how have they influenced their students during the last several decades as they existed? Well, I, my research has been primarily in Ontario, and I looked at four full-time Islamic schools uh, with a number of uh, concerns in mind. Uh, and if you're, I mean, the idea of how to, has it influenced um, or uh, impacted Muslim youth, I think the idea of these schools uh, was so that they would have a sort of faith-centered education and that uh, they would have a strong grounding in their identity as Muslims. Uh, and they also became a sort of safe haven for Muslim uh, children and youth who in the public system have to deal with racism and Islamophobia, um, particularly girls who are dressed um, with Islamic attire, whether they're wearing a hijab and more modest clothing or wearing a niqab as well. Many of them find Islamic schools to be uh, a place where, um, you know, their identity is not in question and where they can feel safe and comfortable. So I think it does provide that to the community. I think that they also have been, Islamic schools have also operated in ways where uh, parents see them as a kind of way to sort of discipline wayward youth. So if some youth have been getting in trouble, you know, at school or with the law or, you know, getting in, um, in difficulties like that, that they see as kind of coming out of being in a public education system that doesn't have the values and discipline of an Islamic uh, you know, of Islamic teachings and Islamic um, environment, they will often send their children uh, or youth to Islamic schools as a kind of place of rehabilitation for these youth. So that's another uh, way or role that Islamic schools play within the Muslim community. Um, I think that, um, so I think in terms of impact, it's a very big question. Um, there's a lot of positive uh, impact in that. Um, but there's also some negatives as well. My book went through a lot of those things, and it would be take a while to enumerate everything. I myself sent my uh, had my sons go to Islamic school after about grade five um, in uh, public school. 
um, because I did want them to have uh, a sense of their identity and a sense of their belief and faith. And um, so they did go to Islamic school, uh, you know, but I found that given that, you know, the education is not necessarily even where you have some teachers who are certified, some who are not, the quality of education was, uh, you know, was very uneven. And I found that to be um, difficult. So over time, as well as I also found that some teachers, even though, uh, you know, they're teaching subjects like math or science, uh, would take it upon themselves to offer their Islamic teachings to the students, which were um, often really problematic and coming from certain cultural backgrounds. So in a very unauthorized way, they were offering their own sort of um, uh, take on Islam uh, to the kids in the classroom. And I would hear things my sons would come home and tell me, which I knew that were not correct, and then have to constantly be correcting <laughs> what they were picking up. So that wasn't coming from the Islamic uh, studies teacher. It was just coming from, you know, teachers who weren't educated in Islamic studies, but still felt that because they were in Islamic school, they could offer their uh, views. And so um, those are, you know, a lot of also the growing pains of Islamic schools. You know, my kids were in school a number of years ago, um, more than a decade ago. So, you know, and at the time I was doing my uh, study on Islamic schools as well, a lot of them were fairly new, but there were many of them. There was about 36 full-time schools in Ontario at that time. So, you know, and otherwise uh, students uh, were doing very well academically in many of the schools. They have in Ontario the EQAO, or the, um, which is a sort of standardized test that all schools do, and Islamic schools were doing very well, or the students there were doing very well uh, on that level um, academically and you know but in other ways I think and I go through a lot of these things in my book there were uh, definitely uh, challenges that schools still have to overcome and the issue of you know how well prepared are the graduates to go into university I only know uh, anecdotally because I do know uh, you know many graduates of Islamic schools who then moved on uh, but there are definitely challenges for them going from fairly sheltered kind of system into uh, you know a large university that is uh, co-ed and that is, uh, you know, um, not sheltered in that sense. So there are some challenges there as well. But I don't think anyone's done a, a study as yet that actually maps the transition of um, students from full-time Islamic schools to any, any form of post-secondary, but that would be interesting. Uh, and in the monograph in this book, which you have just mentioned, uh, which was issued 10 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, he explained the role of faith-based schools in preventing uh, the split of identity of mm -hmm. students, mm -hmm. which they could have in a public school. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the challenges which Muslim kids face uh, in a public school today are different from those which their counterparts faced 10 years ago? Well, right now we're talking about a generation of youth that I refer to in my upcoming book as the 9-11 generation of Muslim youth. And just uh, two days ago I was in a, in a forum and there was a 14-year-old who was talking about the impact of Islamophobia and how she's often reticent, and she's in public school, um, to tell people that she's Muslim because she's actually in fear of physical her physical safety because of, you know, um, possible reprisals or people's views about Muslims that are very uh, distorted and based on negative and false stereotypes and very sensationalized media representations. Um, that she prefers not to sometimes identify herself as Muslims to people she doesn't know because of, you know, and the way she said it was, well, I don't want to get jumped after school.
So, you know, there is, I think, uh, and this is where my current research has really been looking at is really what is the impact been of uh, 9-11, the war on terror, ongoing security policies, ongoing imperial wars, um, and uh, an escalation of, uh, you know, Islamophobia. What impact does that have on Muslim youth and their sense of identity, citizenship, belonging, and so on? And so my current uh, study is looking at this very issue. So I think for when we when I talked 10 years ago about a sort of split identity that some Muslim youth experience because when they're in public school, because of the fact that they often are shielding their identity or they're trying to pass in other ways, they may not want to be identified as Muslim. So some would, for example, anglicize their name or some would, for example, girls might wear more modest clothing when they leave the home or wear a hijab and when they get to school, they'll take it off. You know, so this kind of is sort of where that split personality tends to come in when there's a conflicting set of expectations at school and home. Like there's no cultural consistency between what your expectation is at home and what's at school. So you have competing cultural demands and that's where that split happens. So when kids are going to an Islamic school and they're coming from a practicing Muslim home, there's more congruence with the values and expectations in that sense. But youth are always also trying to figure out their own identity in the midst of all of this. So uh, I've also found in my current study that Muslim youth, this 9-11 generation, when it comes to their sense of identity, are either um, investing more in that identity because of the, the fact that their identities are under siege. So they're investing more in that identity to sort of be able to stand up and counter and speak to, you know, the way that their community and their own identity is being vilified. And others are going through an estrangement where they are sort of, again, distancing themselves from the reality, from their identity as Muslims uh, in order to avoid backlash sort of identified that kind of investment or estrangement from the identity, depending on how it's affecting them as individuals. Do you, call, do you think that the Islamophobia in Canadian society and racialization of the society influence the decision of parents, of Muslim parents, to prefer a religious school to a public school? You know, uh, when I did my study, it was in the late, started in the late 1990s into 2000. So it was just ended prior to 9-11. But even at that time, that was one of the issues as to why parents were choosing to send their kids to Islamic schools. So one of the issues was the fact that their kids were experiencing racism and discrimination, Islamophobia within the public system. So this was, you know, pre-9-11. And of course, Islamophobia predates long predates 9-11. It didn't just begin on September 12th. So these issues were, were happening even prior. So, you know, definitely since then, there's uh, been an escalation of that type of scrutiny and negative attention and, uh, uh, you know, troubling stereotypes that Muslim youth, this 9-11 generation, have to, to deal with. So it would uh, definitely still be, I think, one of the reasons that uh, parents would look to Islamic schools as an alternative. But I haven't done uh, a study to follow up on that uh, in, in sort of the uh, post 9-11 context. But the research that I'm doing now, which looked at 130 Muslim youth across Canada, right, from the East Coast to the West Coast, uh, looking at their experiences. Uh, and most of them actually were in public schools. Some of them had been in Islamic schools as well, sort of in and out. Um, kids often, Muslim kids often migrate in and out of Islamic schools. So they might be in there for their early uh 
formation in elementary school, but then their parents may switch them to a public high school and so on. Um, but definitely a lot of them spoke of the kinds of um, alienation and discrimination they faced in school, as well as in post-secondaries, as well as in universities. So it's definitely uh, something that youth are still dealing with. And, and I think it would um, therefore make Islamic schools seem more like a safe haven. Still, many sociologists who study religious schools, they have a concern uh, about whether the schools are able to promote autonomy and critical thinking uh, out of your research, based on your research. Um, what kind of tools do Muslim schools use uh, to uh, develop critical thinking in their students and uh, make them, uh, to build them as responsible citizens? Right. Well, I think the issue of uh, critical thinking a lot of it depends on the the teachers themselves and whether they're well trained in pedagogy to be able to uh help students become critical thinkers and again that tended to vary on whether the teachers had experience or were uh had trained in education versus those that hadn't because um um, those teachers often who weren't trained specifically in pedagogy did more things like rote learning. So with rote learning, there isn't that space to question, challenge, or, or interrogate. You're just memorizing, right? And so teachers who were uh, trained, uh, you know, specifically with bachelors of education and Ontario teaching certificates had uh, a broader, you know, uh, set of strategies and ideas and philosophical understandings of education and how to integrate uh, critical thinking within that. So they definitely did promote it um, when it comes, you know, in different areas, when it comes to religion and the religious knowledge, because remember, these schools are teaching, you know, also secular subjects and religious subjects. So in terms of secular subjects, I think, you know, there's definitely a focus on thinking critically and, and um, being able to challenge and question and analyze. Uh, within the religious component uh, of it as well, I think that those spaces were far more closed to be able to question and challenge sort of tenets of the faith or um, ideas around it. I mean, I think, you know, asking questions, you know, was one thing, but having the freedom to really be able to question seriously, I don't think that that space was there. Um, I think that in, in a lot of spaces, when even when students, let's say, graduate from an Islamic school, they tend to go to a university. And if they join the Muslim Student Association, you know, that's another sort of uh, space where they are, um, is a spaces of knowledge production as well around, around Islam. And those spaces, you know, get a little more open. But there's definitely still a certain culture, uh, a way of promoting specific kinds of um, religious practices and so on that is, you know, sometimes pretty uniform and you have to adapt to that cultural environment, right? So unfortunately, I think that the spirit of debate and interrogation and questioning around Islamic tenets and around Islamic knowledge in general has not been evident in the way Islamic schools are teaching the faith or the tradition. And therefore, I think with a lot of youth, that is something they end up often confused later in life because, you know, they were really, religion was something explained to them that is black and white. And I find that they look for that. They are sometimes uncomfortable when they do find out about the gray areas. So, for example, when I've taught, uh, I used to teach gender and Islam at University of Toronto, and I had predominantly Muslim students, some who came through Islamic schools, some who came through public schools, to talk about things that challenged, I guess, their conventional knowledge about gender and Islam. 
they had a very hard time with it. Uh, when they found out that there was actually uh, a broader path of Islam than the more narrow one that they had uh, socialized and educated about in the traditional, you know, channels of Islamic education, whether through their madrasas or through their Islamic schools or through the, the mosques and the halakas, they often get a, a very black and white sense. And so when they come to university and we are presenting it in a much broader way based on, you know, looking at the historical tradition, looking at, um, you know, a vast uh, array of knowledge that they're not usually getting before they come come to university, they have a very hard time. And I've had students say things to me like, why does it have to be so open-ended? Like, why can't people just go in a room and then tell us <laughs> what is right and wrong? And I said, well, why would you want that? First of all, why would you want people somewhere sitting and defining your faith for you? Who would be at that table? Don't you want to be at that table too, right? To ask questions and to challenge and so on. So they're very much used to, um, you know, being socialized into things that are sort of black and white. So the gray areas confuse them. And I think it is really about how religion is um, hold on to for a sense of certainty. So if you start to say, well, yes, it, you know, the faith says this and it says that, but it also says this, then they're confused. Because like, just tell me which one I'm supposed to follow. And so they have a hard time, you know, kind of reconciling the multiplicity of ways that we can actually uh, interpret, you know, the sort of hermeneutics of faith have become more open, right? Uh, it's been different in the development of other faiths, you know, in Christianity and in Judaism. There's been, I think, a longer tradition of looking at religion in a, in a broader way. In Islam, I think that we're starting to come to that because now we have things like feminist hermeneutics of the Quran. So this knowledge of academic knowledge hasn't filtered down to the Islamic schools or to the mosques or to the halakas or weekend schools. So they start to get that when they come to university and it confuses them in many cases. And sometimes they also have a sense of dissonance. And I think it's a very sort of critical time where they are trying to now, outside of the confines of their community, Islamic schools and so on, um, and family and, and community environment are in a different kind of very plural space trying to sort out their sense of identity, their uh, relationship to their faith, uh, once they see that it's there's more options within it, and sort of where they fall on this um, sort of continuum of, of belief and their own journey within the faith. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Muslim community is more and more challenged by the society. We know that in Canada there have been long debates about uh, religious symbols in public space and predominantly female wailing. Yes. So always targeting Muslim women, these kind of discussions. Uh, and in your opinion, do uh, Muslim schools empower or disempower female students? What is the influence of the schools uh, 
on female students? Well, first, just to respond about the sort of gendered Islamophobia in um, Canadian society. And it is, it, it's very much there now in uh, policies, as we know, in Quebec, there's been, uh, you know, uh, the Quebec Charter of Values, which is trying to ban, you know, uh, banning the niqab in public spaces. Even prior to that, there's been attempts to ban hijab, whether on soccer fields or banning niqab at citizenships um, ceremonies and so on. So Canada has a history of uh, the sort of gendered Islamophobia that's been enshrined in various policies that we have. So, of course, this has an effect on the day-to-day lives of uh, Muslim girls and and women. Uh, And so, you know, and another reason why often uh, parents are more comfortable having their daughters in Islamic schools, but it isn't just the parents, it's actually the girls themselves who feel more comfortable in an Islamic school environment because, you know, if they're wearing hijab, it's not an issue. If they're wearing niqab, it's not an issue. However, for those who aren't necessarily wanting to wear the hijab, um, you know, it is part of a school uniform in the Islamic school. So when they're in school, they have to wear it. When they leave, sometimes they just take it off because it's not there. It's not a consistent practice for them. So it is considered part of that uniform uh, at the time, uh, at the time that they're in school. So, um, but outside of veiling, uh, you know, there's other still, uh, what I found in my study, uh, some, you know, patriarchal understandings about Muslim uh, women that, you know, are a large part of how the religion has been interpreted, right? Um, because it's generally have been men historically who interpret religious text. Uh, as I said, we're starting to see more feminist hermeneutics. We're starting to see more women involved in that, um, you know, uh, exegetical practices of looking at Islamic text uh, and, and finding other more gender neutral meanings to the way that it's been traditionally understood. And there is, you know, in other ways, just patriarchal structures of governance and of um, uh, understanding uh, Muslim girls uh, and how to, you know, um, develop them into Muslim women that come from fairly, I think, patriarchal understandings of, of uh, and notions of piety and notions of, you know, that um, one of the things I talked about was this idea of honor and that it wasn't really, you know, girls were sort of stepping out of uh, what were considered the legitimate boundaries of um, Islamic behavior for young women. It was really compromising the honor of the school. So girls were, in some schools, kept very, you know, regular in terms of their movements outside of school. So during school hours, they had to be at the school, whereas boys had more freedom to, you know, let's say go to Tim Hortons at lunch sort of thing. And it really was about regulating and controlling the behavior of the girls because parents are sending them there in order to be in a particular environment, uh, sheltered environment. So if they're seen sort of running around, then that would also be compromising for the school's reputation. So, you know, there was sort of that happening. And But there are a lot of ways that, you know, uh, in what, and so how it's empowering for, you know, the freedom to dress in a you know in a modest way um, to wear the hijab or niqab and for that not to be a source of harassment daily harassment and microaggressions and 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 now as we see a lot of violence as well so it's that safe space in that sense um, and also because the classes are gender segregated from uh, about grade six 
grade five or six, um, they become gender segregated and right through the high school, um, there is a sense of um, freedom that a lot of them talked about and that research has also shown about female-centered educational spaces where girls actually develop uh, a stronger voice, a stronger sense of being able to speak uh, in class and put their views forward. Because when they're in a co-ed environment, it's often boys who gain the floor, you know, to answer questions. And there's also sometimes, you know, these sorts of little tensions or, you know, you like this guy, so you don't want to say anything because you don't want him to think you're stupid so, <laughs> or, or, you know, whatever. There's sort of uh, those kinds of interactions that happen. And just a lot of things like, you know, mansplaining, right? Who Men who think that they always have the answer and have the authority. And so that can be stifling for girls. So in a female-centered educational space, there's a lot of empowerment for them because they don't have those impediments of having, um, you know, uh, boys or men in the room. So they can actually be more themselves. They can actually be more assertive without being judged. You know, just yesterday I was with at a, at a Muslim forum with a, a friend of mine and she was speaking very passionate about, passionately about something. And later all the women came to say that they really appreciated her comments and all the men came to say, you know, that, that was an interesting rant. <laughs> so it was interesting how, and I, this is not exclusive to the Muslim community, right? But there's a lot of ways that when women are assertive or they're independent or they're strong or, you know, how they express themselves can be read in a, in a, you know, in a negative way by people. But when you're in a female centered space, there's a lot, your, your sense of uh, express self-expression as a, as a female um, can actually flourish unencumbered by the judgments of men or by their intervention. So I think that that is uh, one way um, uh, also that girls are empowered in Islamic schools uh, as another sort of female-centered spaces of learning. And the other thing is that I think because of some of the rigid structures that regulate and sort of uh, organize the way girls have to dress, how they behave, what their practices are, like they didn't want in some schools for them to have cell phones in case they're going to talk to boys or you can't wear nail polish or there's sort of all these kind of uh, rules and regulations. Um, but some of them would find creative ways to challenge that too. So they would either some of them accommodate to those rules and others would resist them. And so as those spaces of resistance, which I called small acts of subversion that they would do to basically try and subvert some of the patriarchal structures in the school. So they begin to know and understand how to navigate those patriarchal spaces and how to get what they want in ways that they, you know, can maneuver sort of how to do that. I remember, I think one of the stories was very uh, gender segregated boundaries within the school. And so the girls are on this side, the boys are on the, and you never cross, you never, you know. So remember one girl, because one of the boys been in the news, their brother had died in a car accident. So she went across to the boys section to give her condolences. And then later it was, you know, the principal was like, oh, why, what are you doing? Why are you going to the boys side? And she stood up for herself and she said, you know, as a Muslim, it is my duty to go and offer my condolences to him. So I, so I did that. So she was unapologetic about it. And she knew that her duty as a Muslim superseded any of the arbitrary rules through those sort of small acts of subversion to say that, you know, this is arbitrary. I can, if we were outside, I'd go talk to him. So I'm not going to not talk to him here and, you know, give my condolences to him just because I might get in trouble or just because it would be read as transgressing certain gendered boundaries in the school. I'm going, I'm going to transgress because to me, I have a higher purpose. You know, and by the way, that's another sense of empowerment that young women have is that they can actually lead spiritually centered lives 
in these schools in ways that you can't in a secular education system. So, I mean, that's something for everyone, but I think uh, also for a lot of the girls, they talked about that, about really being in a space where, you know, your actions weren't just something that's existential, but it's something that is you look at for the afterlife, right? So they have this concept of uh, the akhira, uh, the afterlife. And so a lot of the way that they understood um, their behavior, their actions, their motivations, uh, had to do not just with the existential issues they're dealing with, but how they wanted to be, you know, in, in you know, in the afterlife. So having that ability to be in a in a spiritually focused space was also um, something that was empowering. Have you ever had to struggle as a scholar because you are a religiously oriented Muslim woman? Uh, do you mean in the Western Academy? Have I had to yes. struggle? I think for all women of color in general, and I am color as well as being Muslim, when I started in the academy, I wore, uh, no, sorry, before I was in the started a full-time job in the academy, uh, for about 17 years, I wore hijab. When I was looking for work, I had sort of de-jabbed around that time, but not specifically because I was looking for work, but because my understanding about the hijab and whether I wanted to, to wear it, whether I, the way I saw it within the context of my faith had changed after a lot of study and a lot of consultation, but it didn't hurt the fact that I was also on the job market, right? I think it would have been a lot more difficult for me to land a job if I was wearing the hijab, particularly in social sciences. And I, you know, was in, in sociology, uh, which is traditionally a very left um, focused kind of discipline. Uh, and when you wear hijab, uh, especially like 14 years ago when I was looking for work, there is a tendency for people to pres presume that you're very um, fundamentalist, conservative, and maybe right wing in your uh, beliefs. So I found when you wear the hijab, you have to really perform your politics for people because they have a lot of judgment about you on a number of levels, but also politically. And so I think some of that has changed now, but I definitely at that time, it would have always been about reassuring people that I wasn't sort of right wing fundamentalist. And then, you know, I would constantly have to perform my politics. So at that time, I wasn't wearing uh, the hijab, but I did have a friend who actually was looking for a job in religious studies. And she made the decision at that time uh, to actually de uh because she didn't feel she would get a position in religious studies if she was wearing a hijab because, you know, there in particular, you're expected to be neutral, right? When you talk about religion or talk about the subject of study. And if you have a religious identity, I guess they perceive it as being, uh, you know, biased. And so for that reason, she all, she dejabbed at the time. Uh, but my experience, you know, I was for a very long time the only person of color in my department. Um, and so there's always challenges to that. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, racially marginalized uh, women in the academy uh, in general in Canada. There's more that are coming in, but those of us who have become more senior scholars, there's fewer of us. And we also end up being uh, mentors to racialized students on campus, Muslim or not. So there's a lot more responsibility on us that the universities don't recognize. There's a lot more emotional labor that goes with that, that the university don't value or recognize. And so, and we also often, as, as I do, play a role as public intellectuals in the community. So we become scholar activists. We are working both on the academic side. We're also looking, doing community development, which I have done in addition to academic work. I've started organizations in the community like Mentors, the Muslim Educational Network, Training and Outreach Service. And we did, uh, we were an advisory board to the Toronto District School Board. And we also started uh, an organization that actually brought together all Islamic schools under one sort of banner 
banner, as well as doing anti-Islamophobia curriculum and teaching and training. So that was one organization I founded, along with others along the way. So because of our role, and there's not as many of us doing it, we tend to get spread very thin. My struggles were very much in line with a lot of what uh, a lot of other women of color uh, have to deal with in the academy. You mentioned in one of your interviews that one of the main challenges to study Muslims is uh, to recruit the participants, mm -hmm. but also to build trust in the community. Mm -hmm. So could you please provide a few tips to those scholars who are, and those students who are working on or willing to work on uh, studying Muslims in North America, how to overcome these challenges, how to handle and cope with them? Uh, definitely because the Muslim community is a community, you know, as I talked about in my new book, uh, it's a community under siege. Uh, and it's also a community that a lot of people, you know, uh, are trying to research or learn about. So there's a lot of people who are just don't want to be part of certain kinds of research also because they don't have the discursive authority and control over how their narratives are going to be used. For me, I was someone who was an insider in the community. I was known. I, you know, at the time I was doing, for example, the Islamic school study. I was, um, you know, a parent in an Islamic school. I was on a parent association and I did, uh, as part of my ethnography, uh, participant observation as well as taught in one of the schools. So I was very much embedded. So I had trust, I thought, but there were still a couple of schools that would not give me access. You know, so even sometimes when we presume that we have trust because we're a member of the community, uh, there are still spaces that will be hesitant to allow you in because they don't necessarily want to air their dirty laundry. They don't necessarily want someone coming in and, and you know, uh, the environment among these schools can be sort of competitive too. So they, you know, don't necessarily um, want someone coming in and scrutinizing what they're doing, whether you're a member of the community or not. So there's those challenges. There's always a matter of gaining trust. I work a lot with Muslim youth and so my reputation and standing matters you know uh, because of that so um, you know because I have that insider uh, and I, I have had research assistants as well which I found was important in cities that I don't live in so that they had the trust and they built the relationships already they already had relationships in the community where they could go in and do interviews um, for me so that was important but I also have to say that I feel very strongly that research and Muslim communities um, is best done by Muslim scholars. And my book uh, that I co-edited, that I edited rather, uh, Islam in the Hinterlands, uh, looking at Muslim cultural politics in Canada, was an edited collection and all of the contributors were Muslim except, except one. And that was a very um, purposeful decision on my part to showcase the work of Muslim scholars reflecting on the state of Muslim uh, Canadian Muslims in Canada. While I think there are people who are doing good research from outside the community with good intentions, uh, at the same time, there can be a sense of academic colonialism and there can be a sense of then, oh, well, you know, now these people become the experts about Muslims. So, you know, I mean, I've been in situations on, on panels with some people who are non-Muslim, who have done research, so we're on a panel and a question will come about, well, what do Muslim women think about X? It will be the non-Muslims reaching for the microphone. It takes a certain amount of, like, um, entitlement to think that because of your research, you know, you've interviewed a few people or whatever you've done, that you have the right to respond to that question when there's a Muslim woman who's also a scholar on the panel. So um, I think that because of the power relations of knowledge production and the history of Orientalism, uh, you know, that has shaped and defined how people come to understand Muslims, and not to say that, 
you know, there, there are people with, you know, good idea of politics who are engaging in research in the community with uh, good intentions and so on. But it's still a matter for us as a community to have discursive control and discursive authority. Uh, and to begin to privilege those um, scholars who are up and coming in the community, um, as well as established scholars, to be able to, uh, you know, understand the realities that uh, our communities are facing and be able to speak to that from within, rather than having research done from outside that is trying to then impose meanings on our community, on our identities, on our realities, and so on. And so for that reason, I feel that, uh, you know, the research is better taken up uh, by uh, Muslim scholars. I think that unfortunately, that understanding isn't as widespread as it is, let's say now people are beginning to understand with Indigenous communities that unless you're Indigenous, you should not be doing that research. And there's a lot of Indigenous scholars that uh, are there and are positioned well to take that on. So there's, I think, fewer people who would feel it was okay for them to just go into an, an indigenous community and just start doing research. Recently, even at my own university, um, I was contacted about supervising a student and they had already started on a study about Muslim women in the local area of my university. And we have a Muslim studies program, but none of us were asked about this. It was being done by another department in the university. None of us were consulted. Uh, none of us were asked to be part, this is part of a larger project, uh, to be part of it. But I was asked, uh, you know, to come on and help be a supervisor student. Once it was already a fait accompli, the study had begun, they were working on it, you know. And so there is that sense of like trying to recruit you to come in to legitimize what they're doing, but not to consult with you in the beginning to say that, you know, actually you have the expertise in this area. This is your community. How can we be of assistance? How can we? So there, there's a sense of a real lack of humility sometimes in how people want to engage in research uh, in communities that are not their own. And it really plays into a kind of academic colonialism that I, uh, you know, find really problematic. So, um, you know, I think there are ways scholars can engage with Muslim communities um, around certain kinds of questions. But there are other questions that I think are better addressed by um, scholars from within the community. So um, if I can give one example, I had a student, a male white Christian student who came to me who wanted to look at uh, the Sharia tribunal affair in Ontario, you know, a few years back and um, wanted to interview Muslim women about whether or not if those tribunals were set up, would they go and uh, avail themselves of it? And I said, well, you know, the reason that women would go to one of these tribunals would have to do with divorce or some kind of marital strife. So what makes you think that as a white Christian male, they want to talk to you about those issues, right? So, you know, I said, think about the boundaries you're crossing, you know, as a male trying to do women's studies, as a Christian trying to do uh, a study about why Muslim women would specifically want to participate in a, a faith-based arbitration uh, on these very personal matters, you know, um, and really think about, is this your project? You know, and so I had to, I had him read a book on decolonizing methodology because I think this is what we need to be thinking about is how do we decolonize these practices, right? Um, and, and then he came up with a study that made sense for the work that he, you know, is now doing and sets him up, uh, better in the, in an academic arena was to look at it from a policy framework, from the framework of multiculturalism, which was already his area of study, religion and multiculturalism, and to expand the study to look at, 
you know, not just Sharia-based or, you know, faith-based arbitration among Muslims, but also among Jewish communities as well, who actually stood to, uh, uh, you know, um, it, when faith-based arbitration was taken out, uh, stood to lose the Beit Deans that they had been doing for a decade before. So that became a different kind of way that this particular scholar could engage the topic without presuming to go and then talk to, you know, Muslim women about private things, right? So, you know, had he gone to someone else, they probably would have said, yeah, sure, go and do that, you know. Um, and it wouldn't have been the best decision uh, for him, even personally as a scholar, would not have been the best decision. And certainly, um, I think, is a very entitled way of approaching research with marginalized communities. And so I think the role of our bodies matters in the knowledge production that we do and that we need to be aware, uh, specifically around, among marginalized communities, how these communities have not been in control of the discourses through which their identities and realities are shaped and that there needs to be a space for um, them to regain the narrative control. And to be able to, without being, you know, uh, considered to be biased or considered to be, I, I mean, I think all of that idea of positivism is, is, is false, right? This idea that, you know, that, that there is anything is neutral in terms of research anyways, right? So if we can dispense with that, then we can, you know, actually do research and talk about the limitations of that if there are, but we don't have to presume that there is in any way this sort of neutral or unbiased way of doing, especially qualitative research. So that's my uh, opinion on, on uh, you know, looking at uh, research within the Muslim community, gaining trust, but also looking at whether, you know, whether or not the projects you're undertaking are your well-placed to do that or whether there are actually people within the community that would be better placed to, to take that on. Uh, Jasmine, thank you very much for listening to you. Thank you for your time. And uh, I wish you all the best with all your research projects. And I hope to see you again at the Religious Studies Project. Uh... Thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to hearing comments on this particular podcast, particularly that closing section. But we'll have a, an official response, I hope, coming up. Well, indeed. And thanks so much to Maria and Jasmine for that. Great to get... A few topics featured on the podcast that haven't been featured thus far. And well done to Maria's for her first uh, podcast. Boom. Yeah, so, uh, Ray, um, let, let's engage you for a bit. Uh, you know, Sure. What's happening? Um, you were telling me uh, the other night about uh, your, your current research. Might as well use this as a sort of showcase opportunity to, to tell our listeners what you're looking into and who you are. I look into a few different things as uh, my supervisor likes to refer to it as weird stuff that's the general definition but my phd is on the way that history and narrative interact when there is no connection to history so i'm looking at places where colonization has endeavored to systematically disrupt and destroy a connection with some form of narrative uh, particularly looking at um, first nations in canada and the way that there are now newer generations attempting to broach that gap and reinvent something that they have had no connection to because they've lost it, you know, languages or culture or traditions. And um, yeah, that's where I'm at. Fantastic. I know that that will certainly be of interest to uh, many of our followers out there. So we hope that we get to hear a bit more about it as the years progress. Indeed, absolutely. David, um, we're sticking with the education theme 
next week. We are. We've got a special podcast uh, for you next week, which was recorded by our friend Wendy Dossett. I think she's appeared before. She was involved in a roundtable on narrative. Yeah, and I interviewed her on uh, uh, religion, spirituality, and uh, addiction recovery. Oh, yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, Well, Wendy uh, is very involved in religious education um, and the way that what we do as academics, how that informs and relates to what teachers do in schools, particularly in secondary school, but um, primary school comes into this discussion as well. And she, when the Commission on Religious Education came out um, just a couple of weeks back, she got in touch with us about having a discussion about that for the RSP. Um, Basically, a report recommending wide reaching changes in the way that religious education works in secondary schools in England and Wales but will have bigger repercussions around the country and probably elsewhere as well and um, she managed to put together a roundtable with Joyce Miller and Eleanor Nisbet who were two of the commissioners and authors of the report and also religious education sociologist uh, Celine Benoit who's actually convener of Socrel as well so the four of them got together to have a discussion um, we had to make, maybe make a few compromises on sound quality just in order to make it happen to get the commissioners in the same room um, but we're very pleased with the results so we're going to be bringing you that next week we're jumping that ahead of the queue uh, to bring you that interview uh, well roundtable discussion next week so I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to being able to bring that. Yeah, fantastic. And thanks, David, and everyone for facilitating that. And um, we would put Ray on the spot a little bit more, but um, we've also wittered on quite a bit there. So it's probably I wonder if he'll still be here next week. I've got a feeling that he will. Um, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> no, you better not. <laughs> the door is locked. Um, so uh, there's something that we say at the end of every podcast, Ray, and this is a, a true test of whether you, you should really be on the RSP team or if you're an imposter. Uh, we'll let you say it. Thanks for listening. Past with flying colours. <laughs> the Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.